So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. <gasps> She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at, at Marshall's. Marshalls. Welcome to the Little Queer Library. Here, we discuss all things literary and LGBT+. My name is River Kiro, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm your co-host and resident cat boy, Wake Cook. My <laughs> pronouns are he, him. <laughs> you usually put your quip, like, right before I we record, <laughs> so I don't get to see it. <laughs> you never know what to expect. Aha, uh -huh, so quirky. So, Wake, what have you been up to today? Um, nothing much. I've been working on my book, which is... For the moment, a secret. We'll discuss more of that another time. Yay! That's exciting. But what have you been doing in regards to reading, my love? What have I been reading? Um, so what I've been reading lately, I've been reading a couple of books. One of them has been Giovanni's Room, and I'm halfway through that, but I want to spend a little more time on it next week. Uh, so I'm going to wait, hold off to talk about that until then when I finished it. Right now, I'm in the first uh, third or so of Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars by Kai Chen Tong, Ooh. who um, I mentioned it briefly last week when we were talking um, in our little segment about queer memoirs. It came out in 2016, and it's kind of like part memoir, part fictionalized, because the protagonist is a trans girl who is based off of the author who came from a city named Gloom and goes to a place named the City of Smoke and Lights. So obviously those aren't real places. Um, I've been trying to like guess where it's supposed to be. <laughs> as far as I know, I think the author is from Montreal. So like my guess is that it's like, um, or not Montreal, but like from the Quebec, uh, Ontario kind of area. So I'm not sure like what these cities are referring to specifically. It's a coming of age story. Um, the protagonist is also Asian. She's a pathological liar and a kung fu expert, and she runs away from home and goes um, and enters the world of being trans and stuff like that. So it's very fictionalized and it's very pretty. Some parts that really stuck out with me were when she was talking about when she got attacked by bees, but the way that she said it is that the bees live inside her even today. And uh, another part I also really enjoyed was the chapter called When All the Mermaids Died. Um, and basically she described how she and her little sister were on the beach and they were trying to save these enormous whale-sized mermaids that washed up on the shore. And meanwhile, they were also having this uh, really important conversation about her identity and the fact that she's not happy at home. So it sort of gets the feeling of like, she's putting a spin on something that actually happened to her. Nice. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting book, and I very highly recommend it. The next one I'm reading from her is called I Hope We Choose Love, which is sort of a more of a poetry anthology, and I'm actually not quite sure what it's about yet. I get a lot of books, and I like to go into books cold a lot of the time. Like, I have a whole paragraph about what happens in Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, but the part that I really, but I only really know about uh, the beginning, because I don't always read summaries before I read a book. I am the opposite. I like to know kind of the general of what's going to happen. I don't like reading the ending because I know some people will read the ending and then they'll go back to the beginning and read the book. I don't like doing that, but I like knowing kind of generally what I'm to expect when I go into a book. For me, I never read the ending of a book when I first get it, but sometimes something that I'll do is that I'll get to like the halfway point in the book, especially if it's a really, really tense one, and then I'll flip to the end to see if everything ends up okay. And something else that I do is that if there's a character that I get really attached to, I just flip through like the last quarter of the book to see where their name comes up. And I'm like, if this character like disappears or like is forgotten about or dies or whatever, then like I don't want anything to do with <laughs> That's unfortunately really funny. <laughs> no, I know that's such a weird quirk. Like, um, I don't know anybody else who does that, but like I won't read it. I'll just like power skim for the person's name. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> See, I always, 
I always find out my favorite characters die by accident because I'll go to get drawing reference and then it's like, this character dies in this book. And I'm like, oh. Oh, I don't know. I feel like side characters are very prone to having bad stuff happen to them or being kind of uh, written out. Whereas meanwhile, they're the characters that I tend to identify with the most. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, same. I remember really, really distinctly. I was like reading the last Hunger Games book when I was, because when I was, uh, when did those come out? Because I think I must have been like 12 or 13 when I read yeah. those. Yeah, because that was a while yeah, that, ago. That matters. I read those books in a weekend. Like, I just inhaled them. Like, it was three books and I read them in like two days. It was insane. I don't know how I did that. I like channeled the power of Shakespeare or something. <laughs> but I inhaled them and I got to like halfway through Mockingjay and I was like, Yo, if she, like, fucking dies, I'm gonna be really mad. So I flipped to the end to make sure she wasn't dead. Oh my god. No, I was feeling that. That that was one of the last books my dad read to me. And Aww. it was really sweet. But the whole time I was, like, on, the, on edge. Because I was like, I don't really want her to die. Because I would suck. That's... There's some stories where I'm, like, okay with the character dying. Especially if I don't like them. But... <laughs> <laughs> There's others where I'm like, I'll be like really actively pissed. The downside of the fact that I inhaled those two book, those three books in a weekend is the fact that I remember absolutely nothing about them. Like I got zip zero zilcho. I got no memories, especially of Mockingjay. Like I read Hunger Games in a more timely fashion. And then of course the memories are reinforced by me watching the movie, but I never saw the other two Hunger Games movies, like, I had no idea what happens in Catching Fire or Mockingjay, not a single clue. And I don't remember anything about the books either, <laughs> except for the fact that, uh, spoiler alert for, uh, Mockingjay, I guess, is that Primrose died, and that really ticked me the fuck off, because I was like, then what the fuck was the point in the first book? Like, I can't speak to that now, but that was just, like, the attitude that 12-year-old me had. I was like, oh, so she died anyway, so that means that this whole series has been for nothing great yeah but that's probably not how i would read it now no i'm think i was thinking about that while you were talking i i'd have to reread it but i feel like there's an argument for why that was thematically okay in there oh absolutely like it probably makes more sense in context but i just remember being 12 and being like mm -hmm. <laughs> for for me it's i have a harder time reading books this is why i go more towards comics because with mm -hmm. just like text print books my OCD makes me have to reread sentences over and over again. So sometimes I can breeze through something and sometimes it takes me like five minutes to get through two sentences because my OCD is making me go back and read them over and over until they feel right. I remember that's something you shared with me before, but for me, it's been more like um, how I got through college. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, I... When I, especially for like a more academic text, I just read the first and last sentence of every paragraph to get the gist of it and then move on. See. Plus I can, I can sight read as well. So I can like, um, I can read like two pages in like half a minute if I like, if I hoof it, but I don't absorb as much of it. I can just get like the gist and the atmosphere of what's happening. See, I'm a goody goody two shoes teacher's pet. So I read everything I was given. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, we got off track. Uh, what are you reading? I am reading uh, Young Avengers and Comics, A Global History, 1968 to Present. Uh, Young Avengers is exactly as it says on the tin. It is by Marvel. It is Alan Heinberg and uh, Jim Chung, who does the art. Um, it's good. It's good. It's my comfort food. And I've been reading it again because Tommy Shepard appeared in this week's X Factor with his boyfriend, David Elaine. And I love Tommy Shepard, so I, I wanted to see him, my, my my son, again. Excellent. Okay, side note, babe. Was Jim Chung the artist that had, like, that really, really shitty picture of Spider-Woman? No, that was, I believe, Jim Lee. Oh, you could see how I would, like... No, I get it. You could just ask, like, is that the comic artist that drew the sexualized woman? And I'd be like, that's, like, all of them, so... <laughs> no, that's true, but I was like, is that the comic artist that drew Spider-Woman in a suit that was vacuum-packed so tightly that you could actually see the outline of her butthole? That's not an exaggeration. Please look it up. 
I believe that was Jim Lee. Yeah, who was not like, Jim Chung. Not Jim Chung. Uh, Jim Chung draws women respectfully, although he does have same face syndrome. That is my criticism of him, is all of his characters kind of look like they have the same face. Unfortunately, that's a bit of a... That's a bit universal when it comes to, like, a house style as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking it up to see if it is Jim Lee. Uh-huh. In the meantime, comics, a global history, is also exactly as it sounds. And comic history is something I'm really, really into. So it is a very comprehensive guide to the evolution of comics within the industry and also alongside Western culture from 1968, which was basically smack in the middle of the Silver Age of comics onwards. So oh, okay. It's been it's been really fascinating. They have breakdowns about like subgenres, so like the underground movement of comics and also queer comics and Archie. The chapter in Archie is really interesting just cuz I love how Archie's always been kind of a loser. <laughs> like his stories are kind of boring, but there's such a charm to them and it talks about Archie as a character and his stories have grown with the times. Cuz now we have like Riverdale, which is absolutely insane. <laughs> And the comics, like, are kind of a toned-down version of Riverdale. So, like, that's the era we're in right now. That's what pop culture is looking for. But in, like, the 60s, that wasn't what Archie was at all. He was still kind of a good boy. He should be- he should be a good boy. It's what he deserves. He should be boring. That is- I normally- I don't advocate normally for boring characters, but Archie is, like, he should be boring. He should have nothing going for him except he is boring. (laughs) I mean, you're completely right. Okay, I looked up Jim Chung's uh, Spider-Woman drawing. As far as I can tell, he didn't necessarily draw that one where you could see her butthole, but there is that really famous one where you can see the outline of both of her butt cheeks, and she's, like, crawling over the edge of the building, and her back looks broken. And that's not Jim Chung, that's Jim Lee. And that's, sorry, that's Jim Lee. Thank you for correcting me. No, no worries. I just don't want to, I don't want to associate an innocent with that piece of art, art, quote-unquote. I'm, like, looking at this, and, like, this has been around since I was in high school. I remember looking at this, and people were, like, poking fun of it as part of the Hawkeye Initiative, which, um, if you're not familiar with the Hawkeye Initiative, what it is is it was, like, an art project that came out, uh, quite a few years ago. Like, it's been a while now, because I first heard about it when I was in high school. Yeah. And it's redrawing Hawkeye or other male Marvel characters in the same ridiculous poses that other that female comic book characters get drawn in so like you'll see them uh we both follow like bad comic art blogs and you'll see these like donut donut waist sized women all the time but with the hawkeye initiative the joke is to take like hawkeye and draw him with these like kicking in the air and being silly like that and to see how ridiculous those poses actually are um because we're accustomed to seeing them um performed by women quote-unquote their drawings but by women so the hawkeye initiative kind of turns that gender stereotype on its head and points to how the the ridiculousness of women's bodies in comics and often the costumes will be redesigned too to look like the more sexualized female versions so it's like here's a boob window now and you have booty shorts for no reason yeah if you want to see a really bad costume look up emma emma frost i believe yeah yeah emma emma frost like the panels of her shirt don't even connect in the front. Like, she's wearing, like, a corset thing, but it's just kind of, like, vacuumed to her boobs, and there's just, like, nothing in the middle. (laughs) If you want an even better one that's even more ridiculous, look up Madeline Pryor Goblin Queen outfit. Okay, I actually don't know this one, so I'm gonna look it up, too. You're in for a treat. You're gonna enjoy it. Goblin Queen. It's a lot. I'm trying to see. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. I see. Yeah. Man, they all must shave. Like, I don't know any women who, like, actually shave, like, that area of your upper thigh right next to where you're... <laughs> right next to, like, your um, secret garden, if you will. <laughs> We're gonna have to cut so much of this out. Yeah, this is very, very clean. Uh, Alright. Um, but... So, let's no, wait, wait, wait. Oh, Sorry, oh, yeah. last point, last point. Yes. Actually, I take that one back because that is gender neutral because Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc, becomes the Goblin King and his costume's exactly the same. Alex Summers, Goblin King. It's different, though. Like, we we both understand that 
the difference between the way that men and women are portrayed in comics is that women are portrayed to be consumed by a male gaze and are portrayed to be sexualized, whereas men in comics are portrayed to be a male power fantasy. Yeah. Like, like no women are beating their meat to Batman and, like, his rock-hard abs. Nobody's, no women are, like, looking at Cable and going, like, oh my goodness, like... He looks so sensual. So it's a completely different experience. Um, comics are made by men, and they're made for men, which is not a good thing. And that is changing, which is really good, because there are women who make comics, and there are wim- so many women and people who are not women and not men who read comics, which is incredibly important. And it actually ties into our topic for this episode. It absolutely does, because another thing that comics really, really are are super white super white like really 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 white so this week um this is the first episode that we have is coming out in black history month so i know it took uh 17 minutes to get to the (laughs) it might not be 17 when we edit it but it's 17 now it's 17 now but i pray to god it's not gonna be 17 when we edit it it i know it took us a little while to get around to our topic today but we're gonna be looking a bit closer at um, black queer writers for the uh, course of this month as much as we can. Next week, we're gonna hopefully do Giovanni's room. I know that I wanted to read to have that read for this week, but I just wasn't vibing it. I'm sorry. I was. We're recording this a bit early, and my head is just not on my shoulders right now. Which is all good because I was kind of itching to talk about comics anyway, because that is all I care about in this world. <laughs> absolutely so i'm really excited to hear about the stuff that you have to share with us today so why don't you kick us off like what is your first so how are we going to structure this are we going to talk about specific uh comic authors or are we going to talk about i just kind of have a list of writers because i feel i want to really highlight the writer and then talk about like what they've done okay excellent so let's start with the first one on your list all right so first of all there is a lack of black writers just generally across the industry of comics. I want to say that. And it is, it's upsetting. It is upsetting, the lack. And it's also worth knowing that uh, neither one of us are black. No. So we're going to do our best to be as respectful as possible. And we are, we really wanted to um, just highlight some of these people who often don't get the spotlight. Exactly. T. Franklin is the first writer that I have on my list. Uh, She writes for Image Comics, and you might know her from Bingo Love, which was published in 2018. I really, really love that book. It's so cute. Love that book. So here's just a super quick summary of the book for people who are unfamiliar. Um, When Hazel Johnson and uh, Mary McRae meet at a church bingo in 1963, it was love at first sight. Forced apart by their families and society, Hazel and Mary both married young men and had families. Decades later, now in their mid-60s, Hazel and Mary reunite again at a church bingo hall, realizing their love for each other is still alive. What these grandmothers do next takes absolute strength and courage. So it's... It's about how society like tore them apart and how they come back together and how they have to balance like their families and their their rekindling relationship and it's really well done. No, it's a be- it's a beautiful book. I really really love that one myself. I read it a couple years ago. Um our friend Amanda brought it in for us to read at uh the queer club at our college. I think it's also it's also really uh a fun read because we don't often see queer romance with people who are quite old. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the books and stuff that we see right now are YA, and I think this one is arguably a YA, but it's geared at teens and it's like about teens and really, really young people falling in love. And I think it's very important to show how love can persist throughout time and how you can rediscover your queerness when you're an older person and, and be able to embrace that part of yourself and live and live your truth. And Hazel and Mary are both black, and I very rarely see queer romance between two characters of color. Absolutely. Another thing that I definitely realized that I've been guilty of this when I was looking at some of my own work is I was like, oh man, I have a lot of interracial couples, and like, and a lot of those interracial couples are at least one white person, whereas that doesn't have to be the case necessarily. It's hard oh. for me to sometimes not write as a white person because that's my that's my first instinct as someone who is white, but I realize that that isn't fair and I should use my voice as an artist to, to be able to depict more stories than just my own. 
Mm-hmm. That's something I've been aware of within my own work too. The, uh, the the secret book I have coming out has a relationship between a white man and a black woman, and I didn't, and that's just, that was just my go-to, which- Well, to be fair, he is the villain. He is the villain, spoilers. And this book was nominated for the GLAAD Media Award for Outstanding Comic Book, and I it didn't specify what year, but I'm assuming 2018. T. Franklin also created the hashtag Black Comics Month, which is still being used. That's been ongoing for a few years now. And she also won the 2017 Prism Comics Queer Press Grant, which I didn't know about. So side note on that, this is an annual grant for comic creators catering to an LGBT audience. So you don't necessarily have to be queer and writing queer stories. But if you're telling a queer story, you qualify. Alas, this grant, as far as I understand, it is only available for U.S. citizens. But their website publishes queer comic news and it profiles artists and writers and you can still volunteer with the website in, di- in various capacities. You just can't... Uh, so, so what website is this again? Prism Comics Queer Press? This is uh, just prismcomics.com, I believe. And the Queer Press Grant is one of the categories on the website. Ah, I see. I can link it in the show notes. Perfect. Thank you very much. T. Franklin, this surprised me. Uh, she is the first Black woman to be hired by Image in all of their history as a publication house. And she is an advocate for diverse representation in comics and opportunities for marginalized voices in comic production. So another one of her works was uh, Juke Joint, published in 2016. And it is a sort of, I'll get to why it's sort of, five-issue revenge supernatural horror miniseries that was published by Image. And it takes place in 1950s New Orleans, And the book contains themes of violence and domestic abuse and is quite visually graphic, but the art was done by Aletha Martinez, who also did work for Cable, Black Panther, and Iron Man. Oh, wow. So the art is absolutely gorgeous. But this is why I say it's sort of five issues, is it was supposed to run for five issues, but from what I understood through my research, it was either cancelled or postponed by Image Comics indefinitely, So on Goodreads, you can buy the whole collection and the description says numbers one to five on like, this is what you're going to get if you order it. But the title, like this is the product, says issues one to four. Mm, I see. And Image canceled solicits for the book at the issue three mark. So they published descriptions of what's in issues three and four, but they weren't accepting like early orders for the books. So I don't fully know what happened there. But Yeah, that sounds like some sort of drama. It sounds like some sort of drama. According to T. Franklin, I read this on the same article that talked about its cancellation. She said that it it was an amicable thing and there just wasn't a place for the book right now. So hopefully it, it there's hopefully there wasn't like big drama with it. But the art looks gorgeous. The story sounds like it's really, really good. I'm fairly sure I saw that in a comic book store in Victoria a couple years ago. Because it sounds very familiar. (laughs) I'm very glad it's there, because, like, I want to pick it up. It looks good. Awesome. Other writing of hers includes Nailbiter, number 27, and the Love is Love anthology, which was published in, I believe, 2016. It was after the Orlando nightclub shooting, and all all of the profits from that went to donations to charity. Oh, that's really important work. It was. Re- it's really important work. Uh, I've read it. It is. It's a beautiful book. It made me cry a few times. And I feel like that I should mention this because I'm talking about her. But currently, she has a GoFundMe for her daughters who were involved in a car accident in November 2020, and the link is pinned on T. Franklin's Twitter page. Um, I if you Google her name T. Franklin, it's one of the first ones that comes up. So it's just T. Franklin. But I I felt it was important to make mention of that. that That's something that's going on with her life. And I believe we should support creators in in any capacity we can. Next person is Danny Lore. So Danny Lore is a queer writer and editor for both comics and fiction slash nonfiction prose. And they have a complete list of their published work on their website, which is dannylore.com. But the ones that caught my eye especially were The Last Exorcist, which is published in F-I-Y-A-H magazine's third issue called Sundown Towns, 
and The Moon and Other Beasts I Keep With Me, published by EFNIK, which is now called Color Block. So I'll go a little bit more into those because I feel those are important resources. Mm-hmm. So F-I-Y-A-H specializes in short fiction and slash speculative science fiction written by Black authors. So it's not necessarily just queer focused. It is broad as possible. Like if you are a Black writer, you can submit to the magazine. The um, they, Issue 17 actually just came out last month and the cover art for all of the issues are gorgeous. You can buy them on the website which is F-I-Y-A-H-LitMag.com. All of these will be in the show notes, by the way, so don't don't worry about taking notes. You don't have to do homework. <laughs> <laughs> and the website also contains an archive of previous issues and ongoing writing events. And Color Block is a nonprofit for queer, trans, people of color. So this one is a more specified website to share essays, short stories, workshops, and visual art. The website keeps an archive of previous works, which is how I found Danny Lore's story, which, by the way, super good. Highly recommend it. And publishes ongoing collections in a wide breadth of topics with a queer, trans, people of color focus. Wow, that sounds really interesting. So I thought who, it was. Yeah, so who is Danny Lore? So Danny Lore has done a bunch of comic work. So the write, their writing includes for the James Bond comic series by Dynamite Comics, Quarter Killer, which is going to come up again later, by Comixology, that was a Comixology original, and Queen of Bad Dreams by Vault Comics. Their editing work, I feel, is very important to have diverse people in all areas of comics. Like, I feel... Like, I, I hear more focus for, like, writers and artists, but we need people in the editing room, we need people doing the lettering, we need people doing the coloring, especially colorists. Especially colorists, oh my god. Oh my god. Like, it's a it's quite a big deal. Like, I think that's something else that's really worth noting, is that people say, oh, we definitely need more queer artists and writers, and more artists and writers of color, and that is absolutely true. But we absolutely. also need people who are artists adjacent because, for instance, uh, when I was working at a talent agency, I worked there for a few months last summer, I was, uh, I, I was not doing any writing, I was not doing anything creative, but what I was doing was I was reading scripts from other people, and I would pass them on, and so many of them, I was just like, there is no characters of color in this, there is no um, queer characters in this, the characters of color who are in this are represented really horrifically, and I'm glad that I sort of was coming from a place of being like as inclusive and politically correct as I possibly could be because I feel like somebody who didn't have that experience or who wasn't thinking about that would let a lot of stuff slide which would mean like basically my job is to be like the first hurdle for your movie to get made exactly. and I, I stopped a lot of bad movies from getting made <laughs> you did your civil service absolutely I'm gonna do a little side plug for Hector which is a comic that my lovely boyfriend River makes and I bring this up because one of the strips you did of Hector was actually you made little pie charts of representation within the scripts that you were getting oh and it was that. it was horrendous like there were two scripts that I read that had a central character of color and one of them died and that was it and I read almost 30 over that summer so that is absolutely abysmal Sur strangely enough though Almost 75% of the scripts had a female protagonist, but were which written is, by men. <laughs> which is its own little, nice little present that we'll have to unpack. Yeah, that's, nice, a, that's a different episode. So it's a nice little gift. So let's jump back to Danny Lore and find out a little bit more about them. Yes. So their editing work includes The Good Fight, which is an anthology, and The Wilds, which I'm going to get back to, by Black Mask Comics. Quarter Killer, remember Quarter Killer, I just mentioned it, is my personal favorite of the list because it's a cyberpunk assassin story, and that one was co-created with another author who I'm going to get into, so keep that keep that in your brains. It also has major queer Robin Hood vibes, which... That, that sounds very crisp. Well, Robin Hood already has kind of queer vibes, if you think about it, like, if you've seen Men in Tights. <laughs> if you've seen Men in Tights, but... This, this one's more explicit, 
and I love it. The art style is really good. Um, I will, but I will be getting more into that a little bit later too. Their latest book is a YA anthology called A Phoenix Must Burn, and it came out last spring. So, Oh my gosh, I literally just saw that book today at the bookstore. That's Danny Lore. That's awesome. I, um, I volunteer at a nonprofit bookstore, and I saw that on the shelf today. So that's really awesome. And that is what I have for now. I believe this is a good time for a little break. All right, let's take a quick break. Hi there, librarians. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Before I let you get back to the show, I just want to share with you the Kickstarter for my graphic novel. We're currently at 20% to our goal. At the time that this airs, it'll likely be a little bit different. I'm very excited about this project. If you like comics, queer characters, Lovecraftian aesthetics, etc., feel free to pop by www.wildstarpress.com to check it out. It means very much to me that you would take the time. We may take a break next week because the pandemic means we're shuffling our time around a bit, but if we do, you can expect us on the following Sunday. And now, back to the show. All right, and we are back from the break. So what? who is the next uh, author that you're going to talk about today? I'm very excited. So this is my personal favorite on the list. Um, their name is Vita Ayala. I believe that is how their name is pronounced. I apologize. But I love their work. They've done tons for Marvel and DC. Basically, if you think of a title, they've done it. Oh, wow. Like Lore, they've done writing for James Bond, The Wilds, and Quarter Killer, which they co-created with Danny Lore. Oh, okay. And my personal favorite of their work, however, is on the current run of New Mutants. I love it. My favorite characters being written well. What more could I ask for? Asking for that in comics is already asking for a lot. It's asking for a lot. <laughs> One of my favorite characters, Danny Moonstar. Ayala uh, is currently writing her, and Danny has never been so good. I I love Danny Moonstar. So, and the new the run in New Mutants is just really fun. Highly recommend that if you're looking for a mainstream title. That sounds like a made-up name. I'm sorry, Danny Moon. That sounds like a totally made-up name. It's a ma- it's comics. It's all made-up names. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, that sounds fake is what I meant. Leave leave my girl Danny Moonstar alone. <laughs> leave her alone. <laughs> Other recognizable names include Supergirl, Xena, uh, Warrior Princess for Dynamite Comics, Morbius, and Livewire for Valiant Comics. Remember the Wilds. Remember the Wilds? Just mentioned it. We're bringing it back. The Wilds is a queer post-apocalyptic zombie story that they worked on, and the art is stunning, and Ayala's writing really breathes new life, pun intended, into the zombie (laughs) hunter story trope. And it's only five issues long. It wrapped up in 2019, I believe, if memory serves. Nice. So you can buy the whole run, and I'll give a summary of that. So... Daisy Walker is a runner for the compound, a mix of post-apocalyptic postal service and black market salvaging operation. It is a runner's job to ferry items and people between settlements and on occasion scavenge through the ruins of the old world. Daisy is the best there is at what she does. Out beyond the settlement walls are innumerable dangers, feral animals, crumbling structures, and abominations. Those that were touched by the plague, unfortunately topical, and became something other. After a decade of surviving, Daisy isn't phased by any of it until her lover, another runner named Heather, goes missing on the job. Desperate, <gasps> it is Wallowa, desperate to find her, Daisy begins to see that there may be a li- there may be little difference between the world inside the walls and the horrors beyond. That sounds really amazing. It's really nice to... It's, so it's like a horror zombie hunter post-apocalyptic story that has women who love women yes the <laughs> we, the, lo- the wallowas are eating well tonight <laughs> that sounds really exciting and that's a graphic novel mm-hmm. that is a graphic novel wow that sounds so good And the next one I'd recommend is called Submerged, which was published in 2018 by Vault, and it is a self-contained one-issue story. And it is a dark fantasy modern retelling of the the mythos of Orpheus. 
And here's a summary of that one. So on the night of the biggest storm in New York City history, Alicia Puente, I believe that's how the last name is pronounced, gets a call from her estranged little brother Angel, terrified, begging for help. When the call cuts out suddenly, despite the bad feelings between them, Ellie rushes into the night. Finding his broken phone in front of a barricaded subway station, Ellie follows echoes of her brother into the sinister darkness of the underground, desperate to find him before it's too late. Oh, that sounds so good. I love the classic, like, protagonist descends into hell kind of thing. That's such a good trope. Yeah. I haven't read this one, but knowing the legend of Orpheus, I'm intrigued to see what direction it goes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to look that up. Mm Mm-hmm. The artwork is delicious. That's just a common theme. Like, they keep getting all these, like, really cool artists with their work, and I'm like, yes, the quality and... They do a great interview about their inspirations and goals as a comic writer. And this, I just found this interview while I was researching them. And pretty much their main goal as a comic writer is to keep them fun, which you'd think is like a, well, duh, but (laughs) you'd be surprised. Oh man, I'm looking at this cover art and it's absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. It seems like there are a couple of volumes within it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe you can just buy it as like the self-contained story but yeah no that looks gorgeous the interview was done with cbr.com and i'll link that in the show notes and my favorite part of the interview was a discussion on creating the world of quarter killer and how that like completely drained ayala like they had to take a break they were like this was super difficult but ayala and lore felt it was really important and they had a lot of fun with it and it was all this world building that they had to do. So it was the decompression after a big project. Can you tell me what Quarter Killer is about? Quarter Killer is about an assassin for hire. He is called the Quarter Killer because he does the work for quarters. And he is approached by a child who wants to get his services. And the story goes from there. And the aesthetic is kind of like, I don't think grunge is is the right word, but it's like... It almost feels like an animated indie film. Like it's really bright plops of color, but the lines are really gritty and it's it just has so much good texture and atmosphere. I'm looking up the art right now. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So I do recommend Quarter Killer. That is one I'm definitely going to pick up. That looks really, really good. And they also talked about, this is something, because I, I like the mainstream comics and this was something that, Ayala brought up in their interview that I found interesting, uh, writing for the X-Men. And they grew up with Marvel Comics, and they pointed out that when you're writing for like this big publishing house and you have all of these characters, every single character is somebody's favorite character. So there's a lot of pressure to write everyone with the same kind of quality, as opposed to just having one book like Morbius, where you're kind of focusing on one character that you got to really nail you now have a bunch of characters that uh, there's going to be different audiences for them and different people are going to connect to them in their own ways. So you have to kind of give each character their own respect and how difficult that can be. That's really interesting and totally not something I would have ever thought of before. But like, that's absolutely true because like, I'll be reading like a Spider-Man comic like that or something like that. I'll pick up on my favorite villains or I'll pick up my favorite um, characters and stuff like that. And if I'm, I'll feel a little cheated if, like, one character is written a little bit wrong, you know? Like, that's something you care about more than me. Yeah, I've found with this current era of X-Men, it's a mixed bag. Like, I've found that the New Mutants are mostly being, like, really well handled, but then there's other characters that I'm like, "This, this, this is out of character, or why is this character going in this direction? And it's only one character. But it, it does have ripple effects throughout the rest of the stories because now this one character is acting differently or acting in a way that maybe the writer, and I'm not talking about Ayala, I'm just talking generally, but that maybe that particular writer feels is appropriate for the character, but you as a fan are like, no, this doesn't make sense. I feel like that speaks a little bit to both interpretations and to the fluidity of text. Yeah. Because I feel like at some point, a lot of these Uh, graphic novel characters and comic characters, especially characters like Batman and Superman, the really big ones, they have more in common with, like, Hercules than they, and Heracles, rather, (laughs) and and Orpheus and other 
mythos. They are, in a sense, modern mythos. They are completely fictitious, and there's no pretense of them being real. But they are meant to, ta to teach us lessons in some way, and they have so many voices speaking what they are and what they do. And there's so many different versions of their various deeds, and they die, and they come back to life, and they, like, <laughs> like they are very much like modern mythos. Exactly, yeah. That's just a thought that I had. Like, I'll say that it's different from something like Lord of the Rings, where, like, sure, there's kind of more of a canon with the Lord of the Rings. Like, Tolkien wrote them, and that was it. And that was done. And then they, and then it was done, and they made movies on them, which, you know, we can argue about the movies till we go blue in the mouth, but <laughs> um, it's it just reads so differently to me. And it's just something that like uh, collaborative writing is something that's very interesting to me. So, cause that's something that I had to think about and study when I was uh, learning about television as well. Um, but this is collaborative in a different way. Yeah. More, un more unseen hands. <laughs> and for me, it's further argument why we need more diverse voices in the showroom on the scripting, on the editing, on the publishing, because you have these characters that have, decades of history be it like maybe only a couple or 80 years and those voices that have been writing those characters can tend to get insular so that's why you need to have diversity like hey i was a person maybe maybe hey here is a person who is a black writer and they grew up with batman and they're going maybe to have a different interpretation of of batman than another writer who's come before them like I believe, absolutely. I believe in Future State, the current Batman is a black man. Oh wow, that's so interesting. Like I don't know where Bruce is, but I know that the current, mm. I know that the next generation Batman is a black man. So that reads very differently. Reads very differently. Problem is, I don't know if it's a black writer writing him. Huh. No which idea. Which has its own connotations and is going to be interpreted differently. So, <clears throat> and that is my list. That is a very good list. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Did you have fun? I did. It was really fun. Which one of these do you think you're going to check out? Oh, man. Quarter Killer. Great. Love it. Love the aesthetic. And I love Vita Ayala's work. So going to... I think I'm going to look up Submerged. I think that's the one that I think is going to be the most interesting for me. Also The Wilds. I like The Wilds. Oh, yeah. That sounds like it's great. So that is our first entry for uh, our little highlight of Black History Month queer authors. We're really excited to talk about some more in the future. I think we're going to deep dive into history a little bit and talk about artists, um, talk about authors such as Audre Lorde and James Baldwin. I am not sure how many of these we're going to do, uh, but just a few, I think. I think it, I think it'd be good for the month to focus. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and focus on these as much as possible. We'll probably talk about a few other authors as well. But putting a spotlight on Black authors for this month, I think, will do uh, will be a nice thing for us to do. Yeah. So our next segment is going to be our book recommendations. So, Wake, my question that I'm posing to you is, what is a queer fantasy book that you could recommend to me? Man, I had to think about this one, because queer fantasy is slim pickings already, and then there's queer fantasy that I like, because I tend not to like fantasy as much. <laughs> which is hilarious because you write so much fantasy i really do but i don't like it i don't know how i deal with this <laughs> <laughs> maybe you like a very specific type of fantasy i'm maybe that'll be my next mission is trying to find a queer fantasy book like that's a big fat tome for you to enjoy thank you i love that yeah i like because like i like tolkien's sandbox but i don't like lord of the rings is that... Oh my god, you're so funny. Like, I like the kind of the ideas that he has. I like Gimli, he's really hot. But... You won't even play Skyrim with me. Sky or, you, I got you to play Skyrim for like 30 seconds. <laughs> Skyrim is not a game that I should subject myself to, put, to playing <laughs> with my own hands. It is a game that I'm going to sit and watch you play and go like, Oh my god! <laughs> Especially when I like... Fus Roda dragon and it um and it like flies off into the sunset. <laughs> or more like when you walk through a wall for no reason. Like just basic <laughs> things like <laughs> video games hard. That's a Todd Howard quote. Video games hard. 
<laughs> See, like, what's really funny is this is a, this is a stupid side note, but Skyrim was one of the first ever games that I played um, on the Xbox, aside from Portal. Um, and Portal, I was like, oh, that's super short and sweet. But like with Skyrim, I was like, oh, obviously, maybe video games are just like this. And then I played Bioshock, and I was like, oh, <laughs> so no. there are games that you don't glitch constantly. <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> Okay, so back to the book recommendations. Queer fantasy. Yes. However, it did remind me to recommend the Queer Comics Database. Whoop whoop. Woohoo! So the Queer Comics Database has a really comprehensive search function, which I was really impressed by. So if you're a gay man and you're like, I only am in the mood to read stories about gay men, they got that category. If you're asexual and you only want to read books about other asexual people, they got you there, fam. It's... And it includes major published books and also self-published works and webcomics. And it is oh, wow. And it is very comprehensive with the content warnings. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So I know there's other websites for content warnings too, but this one this one just has it like all in one nice neat little package. Oh, that's really cool. Like I remember looking at it like a year or so ago, but it was pretty small at the time. Mm-hmm. It's definitely grown. That's really cool. And so I went through the fantasy category to try and jog my memory because I knew I'd read queer fantasy, but I was like brain dead. So I don't remember it. But so I did remember two. So for the first one, it is one that you, my love, read with me. The Prince and the Dressmaker by Jen Wang, which was published in 2018. Such a good book. Oh my gosh. It's so beautiful. It is more fairy tale than fantasy, but the art is adorable and the characters have really stuck with me, especially the prince. I love him. (sighs) It was very charming. So uh, give us a summary. So the summary of the book is the crown prince Sebastian of Belgium, and he has a young seamstress named Frances. And so it starts off with Francis working for a mysterious client. I wonder who it is. <laughs> and Francis designs this gorgeous, elaborate dress, and it shocks the 16th century public because, oh my god, it's, it's fancy and different and strange. And it's revealed through shenanigans that Lady Cristalia, who is, is the crown prince sebastian so francis ends up working with sebastian to make all these lovely dresses and continue the lady cristalia side of him while he balances his princely duties and it's adorable artwork i love it so much i found it really really charming like i inhaled that book i absolutely loved it because it's kind of interesting we don't usually see a lot of stories about drag queens in a fantasy setting because yeah. it was kind of it was kind of like ambiguous whether Sebastian was gender fluid or whether he was more of a drag queen or a little bit of a combination thereof like it was kind of more up to interpretation as far as I, I was able to tell yeah and shout out to the art style because Sebastian has this lovely perfect triangle nose oh i absolutely love it i was just thinking about that i was like man i really love sebastian's nose like that was the first part that i was thinking of more more character design that includes big noses please because oh absolutely are the best it is the best feature for a face so just do it please thank you that is a note from me No, so that one is technically more of a fairy tale. It's also kind of ambiguous what era it takes place in, because you said 16th century, but it also felt a little bit Victorian to me, and it felt a little bit like, um... I, yeah, it's kind of ambiguous, like, ye olden days, basically. Oh, and also not to spoil the book, but, like, of course, the big sort of plot reveals, the, like, the hero revealed and stuff like that, but I want to stress really, really hard that it has a very happy ending and that his parents are really awesome. I love the king. I love the king. Like, it's so good. It's a really, really, really good comic, um, and it's such a feel-good story as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So, uh, what's your other recommendation? The other recommendation is Saga, which was first began in 2012, still ongoing. And does it, not make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> no, this is it, tonally, this is like, you have the Prince and the Dressmaker, which is like a nice fluffy cake, and then you have Saga, which is like a crispy steak. <laughs> Both good. A crispy steak with like so much hot sauce on it. So much hot sauce. Both very good, but very, very different. And mm-hmm. Saga is a science fantasy, that's why it's here, because it's technically fantasy, comic series by Brian, by Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, who does the art. 
It is about a, it's a forbidden Romeo and Juliet kind of love story. So it is man character. There, the, funny enough, the main characters are, I don't really care about, so I don't remember their names. <laughs> but there is man. <laughs> no, char- the main characters are not my favorite. No, they're kind of like the crux of the story. because of- Okay, I'm going to do something right now, and I'm going to try and read your mind. Yes. I think that your favorite character is Prince Robot. Here's the thing, that's not even like, that was, that was easy. That was easy. That was like, that was like shooting a broadside of a barn. It was right there. <laughs> I'm like positive you've never told me that before. I like Or monster. maybe you have, I'm not sure. I like, I like monsters and his head is literally a TV. So there was, a t- I cosplayed as a TV head guy for like four years of conventions <laughs> but so it's a space fantasy it's not just like a science fantasy it's in space. it's like an interplanetary war galactic scale fantasy with people who have horns and people who have wings yeah like the colors are amazing it's so good it's also extremely explicit is 18 plus there is tons of gore there's like a ghost girl who has like her guts hanging out of her and that's just in the first book yeah one of the opening scenes is a very explicit sex scene with robot head man Mm -hmm. so yeah it's like explicit violence and gore and assault and many other adult themes but Mm -hmm. if you were over 18 and you were cool please read it it contains several queer characters again not the main characters but they are well-developed side characters and they are enjoyable and they're very well-rounded and i find them all way more interesting than the protagonists who are man and woman i am a little bit uh behind because i've read the first four for sure Mm -hmm. um which is already quite a lot (laughs) but i don't remember any queer characters off the top of my head the the gory ghost girl you mentioned isabel oh oh yes yes she is a lesbian and later on in issue about 30 or so a trans woman oh my god a trans woman is introduced and she is the best i love her in issue 30 yeah i didn't know it went that long oh my god oh no it's i i always thought it was like 15 no it's still going Oh my god, okay, yeah, that's gonna take me a while to catch up. But she's great, I love her, and the ex-lover of man protagonist is bisexual. Oh, actually, I do remember that part. Yeah. She is- No, she's really great. She's great. And she's also a woman of color. Yeah, and she's the best, and I love her. (laughs) Yeah, that's a- it's a really excellent series as well, so like- but again, you gotta commit to the bit with it a little bit. It's hard for us to recommend really long ones sometimes, Yeah. because then you're like, oh my god, you have to like, basically get into this whole world and be committed to this one. But luckily, that is what our local library is for, so you don't have to buy all 30 books. Yeah. Anyway, so- I asked you, to my heart, love, and soul, what is a feel-good book you'd recommend, queer or not, that makes you smile? Aww. You chose this because I was feeling grumpy today. Yes. (laughs) So I picked one queer and one not to make that fair. So the first one is a graphic novel. This is a very graphic novel-centered episode. The first one is The Witch Boy by Molly Ostertag. It is a graphic novel. Um, I forgot to look up what year it came out. Um, But it's pretty contemporary, like in the last five years. The summary is that in 13-year-old Aster's family, all the girls are raised to be witches while the boys grow up to be shapeshifters. Anyone who dares to cross those lines is exiled. Unfortunately for Aster, he still has never shifted and he's showing witchy tendencies and is really interested in witchcraft. A mysterious danger threatens the other boys and Aster knows that he can help, but he can only do it as a witch. So he has to try and do this and figure out how to be his authentic self while not ostracizing his family. Did you get a chance to read this one? No, but I listened lovingly when you were describing it to me at another time. Yeah, that was my brain dump hours. Like, I have the first two. The The second one is called The Hidden Witch, and it's just as good. This one, you can sort of see the metaphor here. It's a little bit about gender, but it's kind of one of those ones where it's, like, implicitly queer, where... It's like, oh, this young boy is having a hard time adhering to gender roles and he wants to go against them Um, because Aster does use he, him pronouns throughout the whole um, story and he is a boy. So, and there's never been like any 
doubt with that. I think that there were there was a queer side character in the story, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's how it, how it goes. But it's basically about learning to be authentic to yourself and families learning to embrace this to embrace their children and stuff like that because it's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. The second one is also a happy ending, but like I am obsessed with these books. They are so good, and the art is adorable. It's such an interesting world that they've crafted, and it's just really, really beautiful art. And they kind of expand on the metaphor a little bit in the second book because one of the boys who had a traumatic experience shapeshifting decides that he no longer wants to be a shapeshifter and decides to reject that and step away from the magic altogether. And they end up having, uh, they meet a new, uh, in the second book, they meet a witch girl who's had to suppress her magical abilities, so they've become violent. So there's kind of like a multi-layered metaphor at play here, but it's, um, so it's very much like a book that can be read queerly, um, and it's a YA, and it's a fantasy, and it's very, very lovely and cute. Mm-hmm. My second book is not queer, and it's super old. I decided to throw myself back in time to this one in my childhood. I haven't read this in like six years, but I really want to find a copy of it again. It's called The Four-Story Mistake by Elizabeth N. Wright. It came out in 1942. The summary is that The Four-Story Mistake is a children's novel written and illustrated. Oh, I didn't know it was illustrated by her as well. Very interesting. But... (laughs) It's the second book in this series, um, but it was the first one that I read. The first one... Oh, the first one was called The Saturdays, and the second one is called The Four Story Mistakes. So it's the second in the Melody family series. The first one, um, I don't remember as well, but the second story begins with the four siblings and their dad and their cook moving out to the countryside in this house that's called the four-story mistake and the story of it is it's basically a huge family used to live in this house um and it was supposed to be a four-story house but there was a mistake in the building plans and the master came back the the following summer and discovered that a three-story house had been built instead which was a big deal because they had 12 children (laughs) so instead they built a cupola on top of the house which if you know what a structure like, a cupola is just, like, a tiny little um, lookout, essentially, and they somehow manage to squeeze all of them in. So anyway, the Melendee children live, move into this house in the countryside, and the house is full of secrets, and I remember they do things like they go skating in the winter, they discover a secret room that's, like, one whole side of the house was, like, walled off, and they end up finding, they end up finding it and turning it into their secret playroom. Um, one of the girls learns how to ride a bicycle and she ends up wrecking her bike and then is taken in by an old woman for like an hour to patch up her bruises and discovers that she has an alligator living in her bathtub. And <laughs> the oldest sister learns to like be a radio star and things like this. So it's a really, really adorable story. One of my favorite quotes that I, that I say all the time is to overdo a thing is to ruin it which is from that book that um, it, it's when the youngest son, Oliver, he discovers a room in the basement that is full of things from the previous family that lived there. So these really, really old penny farthing bicycles and these old books and things like that. And he said to himself that he mustn't come here too often because to overdo a thing is to ruin it. That's really cute. I didn't know that was from this. Yeah, no, it's one of my it was one of my favorite books when I was a child. I only for it was really weird because I only had that one, but I I think I borrowed the first one from the library at one point and I might have read the second one, but like that's the one that really sticks in my head because it was a series, but just that one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like I didn't care I didn't care about the others. No, I feel that. No, absolutely. So just to recap, our peek at next week is we're going to talk a little bit about Giovanni's room actually this time um (laughs) (laughs) sorry to sucker you guys out um i might also we're we might also try and talk about some other authors i really want to talk about audrey lord and bell hooks at some point yes um because they're both really interesting people but that might be a different episode because their lives are very expansive and we we should focus on them more entirely so let's do that some other time Mm -hmm. that is going to do it for us this week the song that we use is Highway Flowers by Bird Creek. If you want to get in touch, our email address is littlequeerlibrarypod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at huckleberry.comics and wake at notacleverneamer. All of that will be in the show notes, as well as all the books that we talked about this episode. Thank you for joining us in our Little Queer Library.
Your next career move could be your best. Verizon Retail is where people learn, grow, and succeed. We offer the potential to earn up to $50,000 annually and amazing benefits that start on day one. Get perks including half off your wireless phone plan, up to $8,000 per year in tuition assistance, and a 401k match to help you reach your goals. Pursue your ambitions today. Learn more and apply at verizon.com forward slash retail careers.